Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn in Wiltshire, where we are inspecting the storm damage. Hello, it's Richard Heller in um, south-east London, where it's rather cloudy and I hope it's not the forerunner of Storm Franklin. And today we have the foremost historian of Pakistan cricket, we should say, present company included, Richard. (laughs) Quite right, (laughs) yep. Very modest, but appropriately so. Um, We're delighted to welcome um, Osman Samiuddin to the podcast. Uh, Osman is the author of The Unquiet Ones, which is a a stirring and unquiet history of Pakistan cricket, as indeed it should be. Uh, but he's also the um, senior editor of um, Crick Info, the world's greatest uh, online cricket resource. And Osman, you've got a very busy, in that capacity, you've got a very busy month coming up ahead of you in March, haven't you? Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me on, both Richard and Peter. It's an absolute pleasure. We've been trying to do this for a while, but we're finally dancing now. And um, it was far too modest, by the way, with that, <laughs> with the discussions about yourself um, in that, you know, it, very honored to be once again on the same stage as you guys, you know, talking about Pakistan history. But yeah, March, you know, March is is a, is a crazy month. We were estimating that it's it's probably about the busiest month we've had since, since we've been around, uh, you know, so that's at least... 25, 30 years, we've got four test series on at the same time concurrently, all, you know, all good test series that people are looking forward to. We've got, above all that, we've got the Women's World Cup on, um, you know, which is a, probably a, a bigger event this time around than, than it's ever been um, in terms of the anticipation of people looking towards it and, and just, you know, the teams playing and, 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 the, and because it was, of course, delayed by a year because of the pandemic, it's, you know, people are just looking forward to it that much more. So... It's a massive month. Then at the end, towards the end of the month, we, you know, we, we start building up to the IPL. But of course, when the month never ends, then, you know, there's not much time to really build up to anything because it's, it's just nonstop pretty much still there. So, you know, our, we have a we have a lovely worker with us um, in, in India who she does the, the rota for the whole desk team around the world. And she's been... I think hands down the most influential employee we've had over the last, over the last probably three or four years as cricket schedules have, have gotten so crazy. So tell us actually, just so, so we got Pakistan, very exciting, Australia, Pakistan, which I'm mm. very tempted to go to one of the test matches actually, flick, mm. just flick over to Lahore or something. Like <laughs> uh, we have England, Australia, England, West Indies, do we? So with the New Zealand, South Africa, which is happening now, which is going to filter into into March, and then there's India-Sri Lanka, you know, which is a big series just because of the Indian readership and, and, and you know, India being one of the kind of four most prominent sides in the game and Sri Lanka as well playing, you know, it's, it's a big series for them. And plus there's all sorts of other, you know, white ball series happening. There's going to be Bangladesh-Afghanistan happening at the same time. There's a World Cup. That's a really interesting series. Bangladesh-Afghan, amazing series. Is that That's in presumably... In Dhaka, is it? So that's in so that's in Bangladesh, yeah, and that's you know Afghanistan have been one of the nations hit the hardest by the pandemic because they just haven't played. Not just by anything. the pandemic, poor things. Yes. not just by the pandemic, you know, but, and I'm sure we'll we'll get into that as well. But you know, they've been hit hard and they haven't played that much cricket. Uh, they've had a number of series that have been kind of just cancelled at the last minute or postponed or rescheduled, and so you know we've got that, and we've got the small matter of the the World Cup qualifiers, the T Twenty World Cup qualifiers happening out out in Oman right now. So if you if you look at trying to like work out our our coverage schedule for for that many series, we you know we've only got a finite number of resources. 
And tell us about the, the Women's World Cup, well, who the favourites are, etc. Yeah, so, you know, th that's happening in New Zealand. It was supposed to happen last year, of course, but the pandemic happened, so they postponed it by a year. And I think that has built up the anticipation towards this World Cup even more. I mean, you know, the, the women's game has been getting bigger and bigger, uh, tangibly bigger and bigger in, in terms of how it's followed and in terms of how it's played as well over the last, I, I would say, probably five, six years, it's been getting bigger and bigger. Um, and and so, you know, the build up towards this from our end, because, you know, we've been committed to covering it like as it's grown. Uh, and the coverage from our end kind of becomes, you know, more and more complex, more, we, we have to bring more depth to it. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're, we're obviously really excited about it happening. Um, the time zones are are awful because it's New Zealand. It's just one end of the world, you know, and we've got a lot of stuff in England and, and India. So the time zones are horrendous, but, you know, it, it's going to be a great tournament. And I think actually the favorites, if you think about it, as one of kind of the worries, I guess, about the women's game is that, you know, there's there's a breakaway happening at the top end where you've got teams like Australia, England, uh, New Zealand to a degree, South Africa are kind of pushing to get into there. But, you know, they, they've got such such financial backing as well, such financial resources to draw back on mm. that they really have kind of stretched away at the top end of the game. And then you have this other tier where you have teams like, you know, Pakistan. In India is getting there eventually. I think that, you know, they've got enough money to to, to invest into it. So India's there. I, I missed them out. But you've got other teams like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, who are kind of striving to to keep up. Um, but But that gap is getting bigger. And I think we'll probably see that gap again, uh, at, at this World Cup. I, I hope we don't. I hope we see a more competitive tournament with, with more teams kind of fighting. But I, I, I think when we come to the business end of the tournament, we'll still have kind of, you know, the usual suspects that we usually see Australia's, the England's, New Zealand's, South Africa's and India's in, in there. Osman, do you know if um, Thailand are involved in the Women's World Cup? Because um, they were a rather sensational advance in, in women's cricket, weren't they? I, I think I think where they really excelled actually was the, was the T Twenty format. I think mm. you know the shorter the format, I think the more teams you have playing in there. So they're they're not in the women's World Cup, um, which I guess isn't surprising because you know the no. switch from the shorter format to that longer format actually yeah. it's quite a big it's quite a big jump. It's almost as big a jump from white ball into into Test cricket. I think at, at you know at some level. So Thailand are not there in this no. World Cup, but you will be seeing them in, in I'm, I'm sure in T Twenty tournaments and, and a great story, not least because. You know, unlike a lot of the, the, the kind of associate nations in men's cricket specifically, uh, a lot of the team are, you know, native kind of Thai players. You know, they, they've picked up the game. They're not kind of expats who, you know, who have been living there for a while, who happen to come from cricket playing countries and who, who now start playing cricket. A lot of the a lot of the team, and that's why it's one of the success stories, is because a lot of the team are actually Thai women playing the game as opposed to expats who have, you know, come in and lived there long enough to kind of become Thai. Mm. That's that's very encouraging too. It means the game's really taking root there. Osmanov, um, sort of can't help thinking as you describe the coverage in line for March. I can't help thinking of Crickinfo's coverage at the very start of the the pandemic, when sort of cricket fans turned to you desperately to get news <laughs> of cricket in Vanuatu and St Vincent. <laughs> you know, which was the only cricket being where they're the only cricket being played anywhere in the world. Um, hundred plus countries now have some kind of membership of the ICC. I think hundred saw so hundred and seventy five have some kind of organised cricket. Mm. And I just wondered, does does Cricket Info report them all? Report domestic cricket everywhere, and if so, does it have a reporter or a sort of stringer or a correspondent everywhere? <laughs> and if so, does it need one in the equatorial island paradise of Sao Tome and Principe? <laughs> like the volunteer. 
<laughs> I, you know, I, I would love to volunteer for that role. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like a like an amazing vacancy. Um, you know, we what we, we what we try and do, we we try and cover as, and I think that's one of the strengths of Cricket Info is that we have this kind of global coverage, uh, as opposed to a lot of other sites. I, I think we have a vaster kind of global network of writers and reporters for us. So, uh, you know, the way cricket is, I think a lot of the focus and attention naturally falls on to the full members. So, you know, you're looking at the 12 countries that play. Plus, obviously, now I think, you know, increasingly the, the women, women's cricket in the mix and associate cricket has become, I think, much more of a focus for us over the last few years. Um, and, and so it, it becomes a question of kind of, you know, balancing out where and, and how we do our coverage and where we have our resources and, and matching those resources with, you know, the kind of coverage there. Domestic cricket, we still cover. Uh, in in all of the, of the main countries, I think you know our our county county cricket coverage is, is still probably you know more comprehensive than a lot of places. Uh, you know we have reports for every game daily from the county championship. Probably the outstanding coverage of the county championship, given the way that most British all British newspapers, I think, have disgracefully abandoned the county game. You know it's difficult. I mean, it, it, and even for us, you know, it, it, we had to we had to take this decision on on how we cover it. You know, we we've tried covering it through a live blog, so we had a rolling live blog where we would have updates from every game being played on the county championship circuit every day uh, for a while. Um, now we kind of you know the ECB I think have done pretty well in kind of setting up a reporters network so that every publication at least gets a report from that day's play. Now, whether they choose to, you know, publish it, how much space they give it, that, that's up to that publication, I guess. But, you know, we've we've always done fairly comprehensive daily coverage of, of county championship games. And we've we've always been, you know, we've been lucky enough to have guys like like Andrew, Andrew Miller, and, and George, of course, who's, who's now left, but, you know, who's a big kind of supporter and follower and coverer of the, of the county game. So we've always had people, and I think, you know, that continues. David Hopps is another one who, who often joins us for our summer coverage of the county game. We have... You know, we, we have such deep knowledge. And the point is, I think that, you know, all the stories that you see at the England level, and, you know, a lot of readers will only read about England. They won't read about country cricket. We, you know, there, there might be dwindling interest in the game among readers as well. But a lot of the stories that you see at the England level, invariably, you know, they, they, you trace them back to, to the county game. And so if you're, not, if you're not across the county game in any way, then, you know, you, you're going to miss on valuable context whenever you're coming out to kind of you yeah. know, report yeah, on England cricket. Sure. So, you know, that, that's... Very much the vein in which we've covered county cricket all the time. And again, when, when, I, when we sit down ahead of the English season every year, you know, the, the, the biggest thing is, okay, how are we going to man who's going to be at what county game? Uh, and, and, you know, that, that, again, that's, that's one of the challenges that we happily take on and, and, and we pull out. But I, I would like to say that the ECB Reporters Network is also a big help here. Not least yeah, they because... They are good, it, yeah. And not least because, you know, they've, they've thrown up a number of good young writers who would otherwise have not have found, found a way into the game. Uh, because, you know, cricket writing is becoming kind of smaller and more concentrated. Um, so it's thrown up a number of young writers. Who have they thrown up? That's interesting. I, give us some examples of that. Well, Cameron Cameron Ponsonby, uh, very good writer just coming onto the scene now. Mm. He's had, you know, some good freelance opportunities. Uh, Adam Patel is another one who's who's written for us recently. On He went out to Abu Dhabi to cover the T10, mm. another tournament that we have to cover, you know, that we cover because there's interest yes. in it. I'm not sure you should have covered that, actually. Well, you know, well, you, know you say that, but there's a lot of interest in it from readers. They want to know because... What the tournament does is it attracts a lot of current big stars. Uh, and, and you know, readers want to read about what Owen Morgan is doing in these tournaments, what Andre Russell is doing in these tournaments. The, the appetite for cricket and formats is, is un, unending. It's unceasing. It's, it's, it's just a relentless appetite because there's always somebody out there who wants to know. I mean, you know, the, the kind of emails we sometimes get 
about why we haven't got a scorecard up for Bermuda versus uh, Tanzania, which is, you know, a World Cup group qualifier three game. And somebody will be berating us. Why haven't you got uh, the scorecard for that updated or in on time? You know, so, so the reach of the game is such that you will always find fans somewhere. And you nice. know, even for something like the D10, that's good. Yeah. you will always have somebody, you will always have. And the D10, like, you know, it, it, that's, it, it's a tournament that we have to cover. Can you just um, tell, I, I just, just for, in pure layman's terms, mm. what exactly is Crickinfo? How did it come about? Um, you know, that, uh, that, what is, because it's, it's, it's a new thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I so Cricket Info began, and you know, the story is famous now. We're we're over twenty five years old now. Um, Cricket Info began as basically a way for some British and Indian expats to keep in touch with the game and, and to keep updated with scorecards and scores uh, wherever they were. So you know, Doctor Simon King was a key mover in it, and he was in some really you know back end of beyond town in the U.S. as an academic. Uh, had no access to what was happening in you know in England. In, in the summer season, there were some Indians there who were, you know, in likewise in the US, in North America. They had no access to what was happening because, you know, they would have to wait for the newspapers and the newspapers would not cover cricket because they were US newspapers. So what they did was they set up this chat room, uh, this chat group where they would send each other kind of scorecards, wherever they got them from, they would send them, put together a scorecard and send them. And, and that would kind of, you know, quench that thirst for for information on, on cricket. So it's, it's and, a bit like Facebook, isn't it? It starts off in an incredible, almost as a sort of collegiate, I mean, Facebook in, in a university, isn't it? Just a few university yeah, students. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and this is the same. It's a few cricket lovers in the States who want to get, it's a fantastic, I didn't know this. Go yeah, on, yeah. Absolutely. And and so from there, it literally, it, it kind of, you know, it, it, it began to build up and build up and build up. And they realized that actually there were other people who wanted to also know what was happening. So, you know, there were expat readers out there who were like, oh, you know, I, I wouldn't mind up to... And, and we're talking like, you know, 1995, which is kind of, you know, not the birth of the internet, but it's the internet in its infancy. You know, I, I was at university in 1994 and I remember thinking, I have an email address, but I don't know what I'm going to do with that because I'm never going to use it. Um, so it, it's, it was building around that time. Uh, and, and then it just took off. I think at the turn of the century, it was big enough to be acquired. Uh, Mick Jagger owned us at one stage, but Ooh. he didn't own us. But <laughs> Mick Jagger... <laughs> Go he on. didn't own us, but, but he know, didn't he... pay very much for you. <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't award many bonuses either. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you know, he he was involved at one stage, and then of course, wisdom came in uh, as the two thousand. So it, it it grew from those kind of you know that was the spirit very much of how to and and you had a lot of these volunteers who were just you know doing this uh, outside of their own window of work. So you know they would work, they would have day jobs, and then they would just. In, in their spare time, come onto their computers, update some scores and send them across to like this group of friends that they were developing. And so eventually just built from that into what it is now. And, you know, it's gone through, of course, many kind of iterations since then. You know, we, we take, took over by Wisdom at one stage and now ESPN, of course, have, have owned us for the last however many years. What, what, is, e, what is ESPN for ignoramuses like Mike? Our ESPN is, is the biggest American sports uh, cable network. So cable TV, ESPN started off as, as you know, sports on TV. Um, but of course, now it's become, you know, much, much bigger. It is sports on TV, of course. Uh, it's it's a kind of primary home for American sports on TV and now digital as well. So, you know, are they a, a more benign owner of Crick Info than, say, the Glaziers are of Manchester United? <laughs> it's, you know, I, I, I wouldn't even well, use You'd have the word. to say, yeah, you'd have to say yes, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unless I get... 
No, yeah. I, I wouldn't even say it's, it's ownership. They're, you know, they're, they're a company who uh, have, you know, they're kind of a brand. ESPN is a, is a great sports brand around the world. And, you know, Crick Info was a great cricket brand around the world. And so it just made sense for them to kind of, I, I guess, for them to be together. Um, but yeah. Yeah, ESPN Crick Info has now been ESPN Crick Info since, I think, 2007. So, you know, we're coming on to like 15 years for, oh, right. uh, yeah, of that now as well. Starting off as a sort of social network of friends, um, what levels um, cricket phone at now in terms of well, in terms of followership, in terms of visitors? Can you give us a rough idea? Uh, yeah, I, I, I probably can't share exact numbers and stuff, no. but I, I would say confidently that we're you know we're probably the biggest global uh, cricket website going. Um, we're one of the biggest kind of single sport coverage websites going. You know, a lot of sports websites, of course, you know, you look at other websites and they, and they cover all sports. But I think for, for a single sport website, we're probably among the biggest there. We get, you know, we get reach. I, I, the, the interesting thing is, I guess, our markets. You know, we get obviously a, a, a big readership from India, um, from the subcontinent generally, Pakistan and Bangladesh, but also from the US where, you know, we have a lot of, we, we have a lot of Indian, Pakistani, Sri Lankan, Bangladesh expats uh caribbean expats as well who who go there and and you know cricket info is like they're kind of the, the 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 first thing that they go to their first resource for any kind of updates on you know cricket games and, and scores and news and, and we now of course you know as as is the modern fashion we we, we come out in nice apps and stuff we have mm-hmm. we have a cricket info app which you know is increasingly it's the way of the market you know the, the app and, and mobile web is the way a lot of the new readership is kind of yeah. Kind of engaging with us. Sticking with the United States, Richard and I have been trying to. We had a wonderful guest, Mr. De La Pena, wasn't it, Richard? Who Peter was De talking, Pena. Yeah. Who was talking about Peter, yeah. uh, about the US, U.S. cricket and the world? So much needs a a U.S. cricket team and could have one. It just can't get its act together. Could ESPN, because it's U.S. based, sort of play a role in in projecting a, a United States cricket? I mean, you know, we we. we we are we are a journalistic platform first and foremost, so we wouldn't get involved in the development of a game per se, not actively like you know we we are hereby signing up with for for example USACA, which is the USA cricket organization. We we you know, we wouldn't sign up with them and and start promoting the game. But what of course what we would do is always cover it. Uh, and and Peter De La Pena, as as you mentioned, has been probably the lead reporter on the US on the US cricket scene for ages he does it for us all the time he has got a more kind of stringent eye on the game over there than almost anybody i know yeah he was fascinating he it was really was. well informed yeah and pretty stringent and as you said exactly yeah. and, and and including the kind of machinations behind the scenes of the board and the various kind of board you know scandals and infighting and factionism they've been through i don't think there's anybody better than that well we refer to him as pdp because the name is just too long to kind of call him <laughs> peter della pena every time he just we just call him PDP among ourselves, but you know, I I think what he has, what what the best thing that he's done for the game over there, I think, is to report on it as honestly and objectively as he has, and and he's you know shown it up for for the for the faults and the and the kind of developmental issues that it, it has had, but also for the for the success stories. I think you know he's he's been a big. Uh, a big promoter of local talent over there, but also completely always realistic about the fact that, you know, the game is still predominantly played by expats from, from South Asia. 
um, mm. in the U.S. So U.S. is important. You know, if we if we get onto that side of it, the U.S. is an important market for the ICC. That I think they've made no bones in identifying that as a as a major major market for them to break into. Um, they've got a World Cup there uh, in the next cycle, a T Twenty World Cup that that the U.S. will kind of co-host. that's really co-host, exciting. Yeah. Mm. That is really yeah, it's it's a big thing. You know, it's a big thing for them. They've they already in USA worked really well with the Caribbean Premier League as well. They host matches in Florida, I think every every season pretty yeah. much. They hold a bunch of matches there, which do well. Uh, and, and so the World Cup would be a big moment. I just feel, you know, from from a lot of it from PDP's coverage and, and knowing a little bit about it myself at the, at, you know, through the ICC, that they really have to sort out those administrative issues. They really have to. You know, the the, the U.S. Security Board lost uh, a chief executive, Ian Higgins, recently re- resigned from that role about three months ago now, I think, after a fairly you know, long, but also not easy stint there. And he was, he's, he's an ex-CEO from the ICC, by the way. So it, was, it, it wasn't that he was seconded to, to USA Cricket, but, you know, he went from the ICC to USA Cricket. And he's kind of come up against the same issues that uh, a series of administrators in that country have come up against, in that there, there are such, such well kind of entrenched political factions operating within USA Cricket generally, not just the board, but the wider body of, you know, club membership and stuff that... It, it's really just pulled it back from developing like it should. Uh, and I think that's that's always going to be the main issue. I think you'll always find a market there um, to, to kind of come to a game and watch it um, and, you know, for to engage with it on online. But I think they need to really sort out the administration of the game over there before they can actually produce a team that, you know, and a culture that will be kind of indigenous USA cricket. Osman, Crick Info's um, visitors must be the largest single body of cricket supporters in the world. And I just wonder if Crick Info has done anything to connect them and sort of give them a voice in cricket in their own countries and, and internationally. Uh, you know, we, so we, I mean, we engage with our, the, the number of ways we engage with our with our readers would be, you know, in, in commentary, in the, in the live commentary that we do, the ball-by-ball commentary, which is where, you know, a lot of a lot of our readers go to instantly to follow a match. We, we you know, we engage with readers on those platforms. Um, and, and now we have the live blog as well, which is another mm-hmm. tool where we engage with our readers from. We used to, of course, have a comment section um, a long time ago where we used to put up comments uh, underneath every article we used to allow reader comments but that was becoming increasingly kind of complicated to moderate wow. um just because of you know the, the number of readers that would come in yeah. um but you know i, th- I think I, I think the service that we do is that we try and cover cricket in as much depth but also with as much breadth as we can uh, around the world and and in that i think that is the primary service that we i think are duty bound to yeah. to you know readers from across the world is to to bring them the game wherever they are is to bring them that game. Um, you know wh- whether they whether it's a whether, whether it's a Pakistani in Germany who wants to keep an eye on the Kaizen Trophy uh, and the scorecards there, or whether it's an Englishman in Argentina who wants to keep up with what you know how Middlesex are doing. Our our primary foremost duty, and it's the duty that takes the most out of us, is to make sure that they get access yeah. to that to that yeah. which they need. Imagine that. But um, nonetheless, Crick Info's had a role in covering, you know, some of the abuses of the game, hasn't it? It's um, it has had to cover match examples of match fixing, corruption. Mm. It's covered um, sort of political interference, patronage. It's covered issues of discrimination in the game and racism. And you've yourself written powerfully on um, the case of Azim Rafiq, which we might come to. Um, it's fair to say you're not purely a neutral reporting organisation, you're involved in 
um, you know, the big issues in the game as well, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think in the sense that, you know, we, we report on everything that we do objectively, as, obje- uh, as objectively as we can. But we, we are also lucky and fortunate to have writers, uh, comment writers on the site who, you know, often get overlooked. But we have comment writers who, who have strong opinions on things. And we, we've always been very happy to kind of publish you know, strong opinions on on the side. You 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 mentioned some of the coverage. We you know match fixing. We we we've, we've covered that as as in depth as anybody I can I can think of over the years. You know, just not just kind of the recent kind of scandals, but over the kind of course of the two thousands, we've covered it. Last year uh, and continuing this year, we had great coverage in South Africa of the of the social justice hearings that you know our correspondent. There that was very important. Of. That was hugely yeah. important. Exactly. And, you know, and for those is lovely. She's, she's been our correspondent in South Africa since 2012 now. Um, uh, and, and, you know, loves the game. Absolutely. Is a great writer, a great reporter. She is, you know, one of our best reporters without a doubt. And Will you say her name again, because I want people to hear it. Yeah. It's Firdos Munda. Yeah. Firdos Munda. And she is um, just, you know, her, her, her handling of such difficult issues in South African cricket has been amazing. Like very sensitively handled, but objective, and also, you know, under, underpinned by, I think, this desire to kind of see that the right stories get out there uh, and, and, and the right voices are heard and the right stories are told. So, she, you know, her coverage of the SJN hearings were among the best things that we've done last year. She was covering it on a daily basis. These were open hearings, which were, you know, being streamed live. She sat down every day, listened to everything, put it all into context. She would be in discussions with me, you know, most of that time. And, and we would take a call on, you know, how we kind of report you know, what we've just heard, what we've just kind of digested. Uh, and then, uh, you know, then we, we can call upon writers. I, I include myself in that. I include guys like Sid Monga, uh, Sambit himself, George, of course, was one who, you know, Andrew Miller is another who who can then write opinion pieces on these things. So, you know, we've always mixed, I think, our, our news coverage, which has always been, you know, that, that's our aim is always to be as objective as possible with our news coverage, because that's the kind of the point of it. But we've 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 always had writers who have been unafraid to express their opinions about it, and you know a lot of the time it gets us into it gets us into strife. I, you know the number of the number of messages I get from and and calls that I have to deal with or others have have dealt with other senior people have dealt with from you know from boards from boards around the world who've been unhappy with something that we've reported and that we've written. It, it's a part of the job to kind of deal with that. You know to kind of deal with that on a on a almost weekly basis that you you'll be. If if I may say so, you'll be pissing somebody off somewhere, and you know. At, well, at, that's a tribute to you. That's uh... well, exactly. As long as you're doing that, I feel like as long as you're doing that, you're doing something right, mm. basically, right? You're, you know, what what is it that line about the what is it the, the press release line that you know anything else is public relations? Peter, you I'm sure have heard of this. It's the news that news is something which someone somewhere doesn't want to be published. That was the late Lord. Northcliffe, I think. That's right. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, if you take that as the guiding star for for the kind of coverage that we do, then... The founder of the Daily Mail. (laughs) In that list of people you've annoyed, does that include the ICC? Have you had any clashes with them? (laughs) (laughs) If I start counting, we might have to get another podcast episode. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, you probably will. Come back, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the the ICC, um, very misunderstood organisation, I find, a lot of the time. And they're staffed by some very, very good, uh, some very good people who who know about the game, who love the game, who care for the game. And this is the ICC management I'm talking about. You know, they've had some great strategy people in charge. They've had great chief operating officers and chief executive officers who who really do care about the game. But of course, you know, the nature of the organization is such that they are bound and they are kind of controlled and run by the members. 
And so they're only going to be, in this case, as weak as, as any of the members are, you know, not financially so much, but, you know, maybe maybe ethically or morally about, about the game and, and how it's run. You know, there is, it's, a, it's a bunch of well-meaning people who want to do good stuff for the game in that organization. But, but sadly, I think the truth of the ICC right now, as Gideon Haig has put it before, is that it, it's a glorified events management company. <laughs> uh, you know, they have their tournaments, which are great, and they're really good tournaments, and, and they keep going, and they keep running them well. And it is a bit of an enterprise to keep them running well. But, you know, in the governance of the global game and in, in the steering of how the game runs and how, the, you know, the spirit in which the game is run, they don't sadly have, have much of a say. And I don't, it's not their fault. Well, it's the way the members have kind of commandeered the game into being. The criticism which I've heard of, well, one of the criticisms has been, it's not run in the interests of the members. It's run now in the interests of one particular member, India. And uh, because they the financial leverage which it now has over the game, and that is a interesting uh, criticism. I I I can look if you look back twenty years and you 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 see the incredible good which the ICC did for the game with Asan Mani, wasn't he the, uh, the, the president? The president, yeah, yeah, where they. He basically used the enormous revenues which were certainly being generated from TV. Um, to kind of spread the game across the globe into China, into it was even a, a women's international women's team in Iran and things like that, incredible stuff, and um, kind of growing it worldwide. And the criticism is that India, in particular, but also on the India's coattails, England and Australia are sort of forming a kind of triumvirate at the top. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the pivotal moment came in, in 2007, I think it was, when the first World T20 happened. And, you know, at that time, India was not very interested in, in playing in that tournament, just before in the build-up to that tournament. And the ICC had a really strong chief executive officer at that time, Malcolm Speed, mm. the Australian. And, uh, you know, the, the, the worry at that time was, um, among the members, was that Malcolm Speed had made the ICC a very strong but not members-led organization. So, you know, the management had its influence on the game. And, and it, you know, it, 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 that was good, I guess, in that sense, because you want kind of a strong ICC management taking charge of the game. But, but you know, Malcolm Speed had to leave, there was resignation. And then, since then, I think they've had the, the members among themselves. And I wouldn't single India out here, by the way, I, I, the BCCI rather, rather than India. But I would say that all the members, nine at one stage and now 12, have been happy to have a chief executive officer in place uh, and and now a chairman in place who would be essentially subservient to the needs, the bilateral needs of each of the members. So then, you know, you have a case where, sure, you have a board, uh, a director's board at the ICC, which, you know, has one independent chairman on it. And it has the independent female director, Indra Nui, who, you know, is a, is a former chairperson of Pepsi, I think, or was a CEO at Pepsi. Um, so there is some independent voice there. But the rest of the board is basically people by the heads of the various member boards. And they're always going to be arguing for stuff in their self-interest. Now, you know, people single out the BCCI and, and to a degree Cricket Australia and, and the ECB because they are financially the richest boards there. And so they have naturally more sway just because they are financially bigger than the other countries. But, you know, if you, if you look further down, the, the Cricket West Indies, Cricket Sri Lanka, uh, Sri Lanka Cricket, sorry, the Pakistan Cricket Board, they have all at regular stages acted in their own complete, their own interests and not in the interest of the game. So I, I wouldn't hold, you know, 
three boards, especially in the, in the broader arc of history, I don't think I would hold just three boards responsible for, you know, the, the way the game is played. I think every board, every single one of the, I, I would say 10 and, and leave Afghanistan and Ireland out of it right now because they've only just come into the party. But, you know, every one of the 10 boards, including Zimbabwe, including Cricket South Africa, they have at at every stage almost in the last 15, 15 years acted in their own interests first before acting in the wider interests of the game. I think that that is the sad the sad truth of, of where the game is right now. How does one counter that? What sort of countervailing power can one give, you know, to 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 cricket lovers worldwide um, against this sort of cartel of self-interest? Do you see any way of, uh, of progress on that? I mean, you know, there have been attempts in the past. The the Lord Wolf report, which was a governance report into the ICC back in, I think it was 2011, that was commissioned by the ICC and members. You know, that it made recommendations or it made findings that tie in with what, you know, what I'm saying right now is that essentially you have... 12 or 10 self-interests clashing with each other and suddenly you have a game. Uh, you know, that that is how cricket is at the moment. And I think the Lord Wolf report, although it, it, it wasn't kind of binding on them, but they essentially said that unless you change it from, from the members club that it is, it's cricket's going to continue going this way. And if you look at it now, like, you know, both, both of you follow the game in, intensely, but if you look at our calendar now, you have the PSL going on in Pakistan right now. You've just finished the Bangladesh Premier League in Bangladesh yesterday. You'll have the IPL uh, at the end of March, March the 27th. The Indian uh, will, Premier League, just in Indian case Premier people don't League, know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then you will have uh, the English season starting, which will have, as well as the county championship, you will have the NatWest T20 Blast and the 100, which is, you know, the much-loved new new format that they've brought on. You can look at an entire calendar, an entire year, and, and fill it with T20 leagues and these tournaments, which, you know, is no bad thing because a lot of fans love T20. But the problem is that you're not looking at what it's doing to the other part of the game completely. So you're trying to squeeze everything into this calendar. And, and you know, this Jeff Allardyce, who is the current chief executive officer of the ICC, is a, is a lovely guy, very good on the game, you know, very strong on the game and how it is. He, he warned every board two years ago, three years ago, I think, when they were having talks for, for scheduling to kind of see how their calendar would look over the next four years. He warned them and said that, you know, you, you, what you're trying to do basically is trying to squeeze in your own leagues Plus your commitments to play international bilateral cricket, and I'm telling you, looking at it from above, it's not going to happen. Something's going to give at some point. So you know, you guys should do something about this. Mm-hmm. And of course, they haven't done anything about it. They've just continued four years down the line. We're still squeezing in as much cricket as we can into every day of the calendar. It's you know, it, literally every day of the calendar, there is some cricket game, fairly high level cricket game being played. And I, I think more than anything. It, it it it's I I I just I don't see how you can exist, how you can have international cricket exist with with these private T Twenty leagues uh, in the calendar that you have, unless you kind of rationalize it somehow and you bring some something that is not self interest into this. So you have a World Test Championship in which every team plays every team, and it's a proper league over two years rather than the mess that it is right now. Which you know, it's better than nothing. But it is, let's face it, still a bit of a convoluted mess. I must say, that's so enlightening. Mm. I've really learned learning so much talking to you, Osman. Crick Info, I notice, has been reporting mm. Afghan teams since the Taliban took over. And that includes um, domestic tournaments. Uh, it's given scores of matches being played in Afghanistan. I just wonder how, how much does Crick Info know about the conditions now being faced by Afghan cricketers? especially women and girls and, and spectators. 
And do you know whether the ICC has set up a mission to report on Afghan cricket? I just wondered if you knew whether it's whether it's actually gone there yet. Yeah, it, there's there's a few things happening here. It, it's difficult to kind of keep a grasp on what's happening at the grassroots level in that game, of course, you know, because we, we don't have reportage from on the ground there. But we, we, we get ideas, you know, our, our, our reporters interact with their players regularly so they get a sense of what's happening with the game there. And it's not easy because, you know, cricket's not a priority over there at the moment. Uh, but but I think one thing that has become kind of clear is that the Taliban clearly realized that as opposed to the last time they were in power, you know, cricket's a much bigger sport now. It's much more visible. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a way for the rest of the world to keep engaging with Afghanistan is through the cricket. And they realize this, of course, the Taliban realize this. So, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't want to rock the boat too much with what's happening because that will bring attention upon what they're doing immediately you know so they've kind of let things be they've of course put in their own people in positions of power at the Afghanistan cricket board and what's more interesting is that they haven't they haven't made a unified comment uh they, 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 there's been stray comments on what's going to happen with women's cricket in, in Afghanistan like you'll notice that you know there, there hasn't been one body of Taliban of decision-making that has come out and said, we definitely ban women from playing cricket. We are going to make sure it's not going to happen. They haven't said that this time around. And that, I think, is an indication that they are very kind of sensitive to the perception of Afghanistan through Afghanistan cricket to the outside world. So, you know, you've had stray ministers who've said, yeah, we're not going to let them play. But there isn't like a uniform policy out there. And one of the one of the interesting things we're doing at the moment, actually, is I'm, I'm, in, I'm chatting to a, a, a writer from, from Afghanistan who's not currently in Afghanistan, but we're trying to commission a story on, on, on the women's game in Afghanistan at the mm. moment. Because, you know, the ICC have set up this working group to kind of oversee what's happening in Afghanistan. That working group hasn't done much yet, by the way. Not, And I don't think they will until they meet next month at the ICC level and they'll kind of formulate some kind of, I think, monitoring mechanism at that point to see what's happening. But the ICC have kind of, and the members, again, I, I say the ICC, but it's the members really who make these decisions, who've let themselves into a situation of sorts where, you know, just before the Taliban took over, Afghanistan didn't have a working functional women's cricket team. They had a plan to have one in place but that plan had been dragging. They had given central contracts to 20 women uh, cricketers in the country, but they didn't have... So, you know, that that attracted, of course, headlines and, 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 and a certain amount of PR goodwill that, okay, they're trying to do something. This was maybe November 2020, I think, when they announced it. Um, but, you know, they haven't put a team together. They haven't played a match. And so the ICC were allowing Afghanistan cricket to be a member, to be a full member, without having a women's team in place but on the promise that a women's team would come in. And of course, now the Taliban are in power and, you know, there, there's no furthering of that promise, but there's also no outright kind of ending of it. So the ICC are caught now thinking that, you know, well, they didn't have a women's cricket team before, but we were okay with that. And they still don't have a women's cricket team and the Taliban are in power. And should we be okay with it or not now? You know, so they're kind of, and, you know, there, there's a certain amount of, I think, hectoring, from from voices uh, in Australia and even England, where people said, you know, you should ban the Afghanistan, you should ban Afghanistan cricket board and ban the men's team as well. Which, you know, as a response, I I don't think banning or bombing or trying to replace governments it ranks high up there as a, as an empathetic response to a genuine problem in a, in a country. Um, and and there's ways around it, but you know, I I think. What needs to happen is that the ICC need to have like a, a serious, this group needs to take its role seriously 
and, and start acting on it and, and working out what is actually going to happen with women's cricket there. It doesn't look great for sure, but we need to know more from on the ground about what's actually going to happen. And then it's not an easy call to make after that. You know, if, if the Taliban come out and say that, no, we're not going to let women's play, then should the men's team, which great players, Rashid Khan is arguably the greatest spinner in the game right now, as we as we speak, you know, uh, Mohammed Nabi, great players. They've got Afghanistan got a great men's team going, but do you punish them for what is happening, which is essentially beyond their control? Um, it's a it's a difficult one for the ICC now. Richard and I, I think, rather disagree we, about we it. Certainly yeah. diverge about this, but I don't think we need to rehearse that um, <laughs> yet again. Um, the um, Osman, let's move on to your own personal history. Tell us about your record as a cricketer, and don't be, and don't, first of all, and don't don't be modest. Were you, were you and are you now, as they say, in, um, as they used to say in America, were you and are you now a cricketer? <laughs> okay, so I, I I was a cricketer. I I think the height of my cricketing achievements would be two seasons that I played for this lovely club, and I I, I would love to give a shout out to them. Lovely club based in Lewis, just outside of Brighton. Oh yeah, um, yes. called WG Gracefully. And I played for them at the start of the century, two seasons, great team, just like a fun, fun team full of like, you know, the, the usual mix of kind of old, old men who would only stand at slip, uh, coming up against young tyros who really want to kind of make their name in the game. And there was me, I was, you know, early twenties at the time. And I just wanted, I just wanted to play. I was, I was in Brighton, living in Brighton at the time. Um, and I just wanted to play. Um, and so, you know, they gave me an opportunity and I, I played for them every week. And, and those were the greatest kind of cricketing years of, of my life. So I played two seasons nonstop for them. Uh, I took maybe, I, I think, 50 odd wickets across the two seasons. So I'm primarily, uh, I call myself hopefully an all-rounder. Hmm. But realistically, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a right arm, used to be fast bowler, uh, now much slower, much more kind of creakier in the bones. And, hmm. and I bat number seven. Made a 50, made a couple of 50s from number seven, but, but my best bowling figures, and I've got to say this on this podcast, if nowhere else, played a match once where we were against a fairly competent side. You know, I, I won't say they were great, but the wicket was horrible. It was horrendous, minefield all the way through. And I took seven for two. Um, <laughs> bowled the side out for 18, took seven for two, and we finished the game so quickly that we had a beer game afterwards because we had time for a beer game. And, and I was instructed to bowl only left arm spin <laughs> in that game. And I did, and I picked up a couple of wickets in that game as well. So, so think what you want about the standard of the team we were up against. But I, but I took a couple of wickets with my slow left arm as well. Um, Seven for two, absolutely leaking runs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> my 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 cricket playing has been hit by the pandemic, um, unfortunately. But you know, I, I'm hoping to start up again. Uh, just just some net session at, at some point. I think you should come and play for. Richard's team, the Erratics. Oh, oh, uh, that sound, the name sounds something like I, I would fit <laughs> well, into straight open, away. Open erratic, yes. right arm erratic. That, that's right. my kind of bowling style. <laughs> Fierce competition for, in that bowling style, I can tell you. But, <laughs> uh, I think you'd get a place in our regular lineup. that's for sure, in our, in our rota. Wasn't um, tell us about your entry into cricket, right, into your beginnings in, as a cricket writer, Um Many listeners, especially young ones, would sort of value like to do that themselves. And have you got any advice for them? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Complete, complete sideways entry into into the genre. I guess you know, I came back from England. Uh, I moved to Pakistan in two thousand two, and I I had you know I, I I hadn't written on cricket then. I followed it, of course, avidly. Uh, I'd written a couple of articles for Monthly in Pakistan. You guys might be familiar with the Herald. 
which mm-hmm. is shut down now. Uh, Dawn Newspapers, monthly magazine, current affairs, excellent magazine, RIP. Um, I, I, I wrote, you know, just a couple of kind of amateurish, childish content comment pieces on on situations there in like in 2000 2001 which they published to their you know great kind of regret but you know when i came back to pakistan i had no such inkling in my mind but i came back and i, I wanted to do something i, I you know I, i'd subscribed to i think at the time it was the wisdom cricket monthly and i think tim delisle was the editor mm-hmm. and i subscribed to the magazine and so i came back to pakistan i, I didn't know what i wanted to do with my life uh, luckily enough i was you know living in my parents place and so i wrote an email to tim uh because it was it was published in the magazine foolishly you know they published it so i i i bombarded him with just the one email i said you know i I'd, i'd love to be able to do something i'm not sure what i'd like to do but i'd like to do something and and tim delisle is is just a great great human mm. being a great mm. editor as well and a super writer and and he we ought to he, invite him on sometime Richard. yes yeah. absolutely tim delisle is just the, the father of so many modern cricket journalism trends in in the uk and the world that he he's a must for this podcast by the way so and and a great music lover as well so you know there's that but so tim wrote back saying that you know we don't have anything unfortunately but i have my kind of counterpart who's based out in bombay now called sambit bal so if you write to him um you know let's uh, maybe you'll get somewhere so i was like okay great i i wrote to sambit as well who's now the editor in chief of course mm-hmm. of of cricket info i wrote to sambit not expecting any reply really and and he wrote back as is his want you know his sambit's emails are legendarily full of typos and and errors and and he wrote back a few days later saying uh you know we don't have anyone in pakistan if you can do something for us that'd be great how about you try and uh, secure an interview with rashid latif oh yes uh, and, and send that to him. us yep. well so rashid latif was was had just become so this was 2003 he'd just become the captain of the pakistan side after the 2003 world cup and sambit says you know we our issue of wisdom cricket asia uh which was a monthly magazine that they used to bring out is closing the day after tomorrow if you can get us an interview with Rashid the thief mm. by tomorrow mm. then great you can do more for us and i was like oh my god what am i going to do somehow found uh Rashid's number called him up of course because in those days this is 2003 you know there were no agents or anything i called up Rashid he answered the phone he says uh did you say wisdom i said yes and he says okay why don't you come on over mm. uh and 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 just just do one thing bring me a pack of cigarettes <laughs> like, great i'll do it <laughs> <laughs> went over you know he he sat me down we did an interview and rashid as you guys know you know outspoken to the end like yes yeah, so the back. only trouble is that he, quite a lot of the things he told us <laughs> yeah. were not uh, were libelous um, well yeah exactly so he he kind of did the same with me and i was you know my first proper cricket reporting assignment i had no idea about what would be libelous what wouldn't be so i i wrote everything down and sent it off to sambit and sambit was like wow this is great not only have you done it in a day but you've gotten us great content and so you know that there it began and so i i sambit gradually started giving me more work for the magazine first not for the website because the magazine was as big than wisden asia cricket which was you know monthly great magazine full of great writing uh home to a lot of great subcontinent writers as well um started writing for them and then in 2005 i i was working for dawn by this time the you know one of the biggest newspapers english language newspapers mm-hmm. in england but not in a sports reporting role in in a in a different role altogether which is you know kind of pointless for this conversation but i was working with them uh and and 2005 i'd been doing stuff for cricket for and the magazines i went to india when when pakistan toured india in 2005 uh and i met sambit because i was covering that tour for cricket for and he said uh you know how about we give you a full time job and i was like you know i would do it for free if you gave it to me full time because i'm doing something that i wouldn't have imagined 2 3 years ago 
and, and that's literally kind of how it began. I, you know, I, 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 I had a couple of role models in my sister and her brother-in-law who were both writers. Uh, and so that, you know, after graduation, that was kind of subconsciously the back of my mind that that might be something I want to do because, hey, somebody in my family is doing it and, and they're doing it quite well and enjoying it. And I, but I, you know, I ultimately drifted into it on the back of a couple of emails, one to Tim Delisle and one to Sambit Bal. And such, so much to learn from that to young people who want to be journalists, great journalists. I mean, email, send an email to the editor of uh, a magazine you want to write for. Anybody wanted to break into journalism, that's not a bad way. The worst they're going to do is not write back, right? That's, that's the yep. worst thing that can happen. I suspect we're coming to the end of the podcast. And before we do, and I do hope you'll come back, because we haven't even really properly got on to discussing mm. Pakistani cricket, which we ought to really devote a a whole section to at some stage but um very sadly rice muhammad has uh, has just mm. died yeah and um perhaps you and rich richard written a lovely art piece about him once and uh, just what we ought to pay tribute to the fifth of those that great family karachi family mm, I don't yeah know. go on go ahead just saying i have had a very um rather in retrospect, moving interview with um, with Rais uh, in the home of Hanif um, wow. uh, in Karachi, not long before Hanif um, passed away. Uh, Rais, Rais, uh, Rais had a, a lot of bad luck in his life, not only mm. in not only in cricket. Um, one of the most touching things was that he said he'd never been interviewed before in his own right, and um, he'd uh, he told the story of his life. One interesting thing was that. Um, Hanif, late in their respective lives, was still looking up to him as you know, mm. as the older brother who'd guided in the same way that he'd looked up to him as a you know as a guide in his early stages. I I think, and you'll probably know more. So Rais and Wazir are the two of the Muhammad brothers who I I, I never got to interview. I I haven't interviewed you know, the other three we've spoken mm. to, and, and but the other three always, and you'll have a you'll have a good sense of this, I guess, Richard, is that the, all three of them kind of look at Rais as. You know, if he if he hadn't been the way he was and hadn't done the things that he did as the uh, kind of you know the elder brother, then you know a lot of those sacrifices, uh, he like the other three, the other four would not have thrived as they did, mm. perhaps without his kind of sacrifices in that sense. So I think Rice was very much that's the sense that I got was that they looked up to him as you know as the one who made the sacrifices that were essential for them to be ultimately as successful. Um, as it were, because there, there was quite a big age gap between Rice and, and say, somebody Mushtaq, right? Mushtaq and Sadiq, there, there's quite a big uh, age gap between the two. Yes, it's quite a bit. It's, it's, it was Rice, then Hanif, and then Mushtaq, and then Sadiq, wasn't it? Yeah. It was quite yeah, a, yeah, yeah as you say, right. there's quite a big gap between them. And um, Rice was working and married when he was, a, you know, an early mentor to um, mm. uh, to Hanif. And, uh, you know, spent, you know, spent a lot of time, perhaps at the expense, you know, of his own career in and I think it was in banking and yeah, indeed in cricket. Right. Yeah, he channeled a lot of his efforts into into Hanif, with, to the great benefit of Hanif and Pakistan cricket, of course. And I I hope that he'll be remembered more as you know more than just as a as a footnote as the Muhammad brother who didn't play you know mm. who, who didn't play for Pakistan. I, I think he was much more of a kind of uh, cricketer and a human being than than just that. Mm. Another sad loss. Uh, some weeks ago, Osman was after Balok. Mm. Yeah, Baloch, He was, you know, he. I, I, I think if you look at his figures, the 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 most unfortunate thing after, of course, that you know the fact that he was dropped from after, despite making a fifty on debut, that he didn't play again for another mm. four or five years. I think the most unfortunate aspect was that his peak years 
at domestic cricket, and he was a prolific scorer at domestic level in a strong domestic system. His peak years coincided with probably, until then, definitely Pakistan's strongest middle order at the time. You know, you had Sadiq and Majid, you had Zaheer coming through, you had Asif Iqbal, you had Mushtaq Muhammad himself. You know, that that was a strong... Some, strong somebody called Javed Mianda. Somebody I, called Javed Mianda was just coming through who had like a big partnership with with uh, Aftar Baloch in, in, a, in a game in 75, I think it was, when... When Aftab maybe got his double and 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 young Mia the young David got a hundred, but you know he was just coming he's quadruple. He's quadruple. He's quadruple. <laughs> quadruple. Sorry, yes, <laughs> that's right. He got his uh, Javed got his very first first class century in partnership um, with with Aftab, um, with Aftab Baloch when he made four hundred and twenty eight and then um, lost his head and gave, in a crisis and gave a catch to mid off. <laughs> Out of about 928 for eight, yeah. that it was yeah. Clyde. Nine, 951 for six. Yeah. Highest score ever in first-class cricket in Pakistan. For right. six. I think that was a really unfortunate thing was that his best years came, you know, while Pakistan had such a strong middle order. And so, you know, it, it would have been tough for him to have gotten through just as Pakistan were becoming such a big side as well. He did, of course, have one test after that in which he again did well, but, you know, kind of never... Uh, he he was never seen as as kind of I, I don't know if he if he wasn't seen as Pakistan material I think he it was just literally that you know they felt that they had better options always for that first eleven than him which if you look at Pakistan's record at that time is not the worst selectorial call that you know I would have come across in cricket. By the way, um, mm. Richard and I interviewed him on the veranda of the Synth Club, um, mm. and it was such a pleasure to talk to. Such a modest man, mm. uh, and Richard he he, to, he he told us something very moving. Can you remember what he yes, said? Yes, he told us that it's a very rather moving story. He was on duty at um, Karachi Airport long after retirement when England were on tour, and he saw at the airport an England party containing another quadruple centurion, um, Graham Hick. Mm. And he said he wanted to you know approach Graham Hick and said you know I'm and have a chat with another member of the 400 Club, which has only got about nine members in it, and about four of them are dead. Um, and um, But unfortunately, he said, he, you know, he never made contact, and now, um, sadly, they won't ever be able to, to compare notes on their respective 400s. You see, the 400 Club has got some extraordinary members. It's got Brian Lara twice, mm. Hanif, mm. Uh, but you know, Baluch rather forgotten there. I think. Yeah, uh, absolutely. In context uh, yeah. and Graham Hicks is remembered. Um, you know, but maybe they will discuss it in the great cricket ground in the sky <laughs> when uh, in due course. Very interesting statistic you may know, or fact you may factoid you may know, Osman. One person watched both um, Honeybee's four hundred ninety nine and Brian Laura's um, five hundred one. It's this has got to be Kamar Ahmed, hasn't it? No, no, uh, no. <laughs> good, good once, guess. Very good guess, but for once, the, uh, the answer isn't Kamaramad, Bob Woomer. Ah, of course, ah, yeah. of course, of course, he was in, he was in Karachi for that. Mm. Yes, of course, he, but he was, he was how old when, when the Hanif well, happened? Oh, he was, I think, 11 when he watched oh, the 499. Okay. Wow. Yep. And then he was the coach to Warwickshire, wasn't he, Richard? Yes, that's right. right. I, I jumped the gun on, on Kamar Ahmed there because he's seen probably every match going anywhere. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Can you send our... You know, we, we must, how is Kamar, by the way? Who's seen more than four, he's seen more test matches or reported on more test matches than anybody else living. Isn't that right, I think? I think other than Shilberry. Shilberry is a I think contested, Shilberry is contested, there. I th- yes. Yeah, I think there's some, some fairly 
vigorous contestation of that record between Shield and, and Kummer. Um, but he was fine, going strong. Last, I, you know, I interact with him every now and again. He's come, come out with his book, his memoirs, about, mm-hmm. about a year ago. Yeah, now, we talked to him about, yeah. A year or so ago. But, you know, he's it, it, living the life in Karachi, goes to the gym, gym Khana in Karachi pretty much every day, I think, hangs out with his old cricketing buddies. And uh, I, I think Dutch Wood in good health so far. Osman, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I, I have heavy news for you. I think we're going to invite you back. I, I, I will I will absolutely love to be back and we can talk about Pakistan cricket then. Certainly. <laughs> plenty more to talk about then. and um, well, There'll be a lot to talk about next March in one way or another, not just about Pakistan cricket in the very heavy um, cricket programme you described right at the beginning. And the Australia, uh, the Australia-Pakistan series. England, you know, are, are mm. due to visit towards the end of the year. That'll be a great series to kind of, you know, to look over as well. Um, so a, a lot happening certainly on Pakistan cricket, for sure. Good. Well, a lot to look forward to. Um, but for now, um, thank you very much for joining us, Osman. And um, it's goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in an increasingly gloomy southeast London. And it's gloomy here in Wiltshire. So as we await the Australian tour of Pakistan, in which the Australians, for the first time in their history, teach England how to behave, <laughs> it's goodbye from me, Peter O'Born, in Wiltshire. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.